0: You are listening to WORT Local News, the special year-in-review edition. I'm your host, Nate Woogie and today we're looking back at water quality issues in Madison over the last year. PFAS chemicals, also known as Forever Chemicals, are a family of chemicals that don't break down in the environment. They can accumulate in the human body and cause a wide range of health issues. One Madison well has been shut down for over two years. Well 15 on Madison's east side was shut down in 2019 due to the presence of PFAS. And in 2020, the Madison Water Utility found PFAS contaminants in all of Madison's public water wells, though none were above proposed drinking water levels. We start our show in January of this year when the Department of Natural Resources announced that they had found PFAS chemicals in all of Madison's lakes. At the time, then-producer Jonah Chester spoke with Adrian Stocks The DNR Water Quality Program Director.
1: So in 2019, the DNR found elevated levels of PFAS in Lake Monona and Starkweather Creek. Now, after that, you all began testing surrounding Madison area waterways, and last year you found elevated levels of PFAS, and as I understand it, virtually all of them. Now, do those findings come as a surprise? As I mentioned, um, and from what I understand from what the DNR has released about this, you all started this investigation after discovering the elevated levels in 2019. Was this just sort of an inevitability that we would discover similar pollution in Madison's other waterways?
2: I think so, Jonah, in the sense that we understand that PFAS compounds don't readily break down in the environment. If there is a source upstream, they're likely carried downstream. So from the department's perspective, it made sense for us to continue that sampling effort into 2020 to understand better the concentrations of PFAS within the uh, downstream lakes in the Ahara chain.
1: Now, in light of that, are you all essentially working out in concentric circles to other waterways in the Yahara chain throughout Dane County? I'm not sure. My hydrological knowledge is a little bit subpar, so I'm not sure how far that spreads. But are you all working downstream to test for further PFAS contamination?
2: In general, Jonah, what the department has been doing is we have been doing sampling in areas of, of known or suspected uh, sources of PFAS across the state as well as we've been conducting sampling at some of our long-term trend sites, which, um, which would provide us more information holistically across the state for concentration of PFAS within the water resources statewide. So as, as far as it relates to just in the Madison area, you know, we started at where we knew there was a potential source, worked our way downstream, but we're also engaged in sampling across the state, particularly where we focus our efforts um, in areas where we suspect there might be contamination, and then also just some of those larger uh, long-term trend sites that we've been monitoring for years to have a better understanding of potential concentrations that we'll find in, in surface waters statewide.
1: So just by way of background, can you explain how the testing process works? Does it vary site to site, or is it pretty similar across the board?
2: You no, know, we try to remain relatively consistent in, in, our, in our sampling uh, protocols across the state, you know, these are these are surface water samples. Um, in some instances, we have collected uh, surface water with fish at the same location in order to better uh, sort of tie together those concentrations we see within the water column and any uh, concentrations in the fish tissue. But this involves our staff going into the field, whether in um, a boat, typically, or waiting out in the stream collecting a sample, using our protocols to avoid any potential contamination of the samples, and then um, having those samples then analyzed at the State Lab of Hygiene. We're continuing, this is a, something that has really popped up on our radar in the last couple of years. And so, you know, we're, we're, we began in 2019 in Irma. We're continuing to expand that sampling to better understand the picture of PFAS within our uh, water resources across the state. And in going to the future, we'll continue to do this sampling, particularly we 're going to focus on areas that we learn about that may have had historical contamination in the past, uh, potential places that, that we suspect there may be contamination, and then again some of those larger rivers that, that drain watersheds that, that may lead us to potential sources within the state. Uh, much of this is uh, kind of following along with what many other states are are engaged in right now is trying to better understand. Uh, you know, the nature and extent of this pollution problem in the particular states. It's been shown that oftentimes there is just a, a couple of sources within a watershed that may be contributing the largest part of any PFAS contamination that could be found in the water. So from our point of view, it makes sense to identify those potential sources work to reduce that Source, and then that can improve the quality of the water
1: in a press release the dnr sent out about this you all provided a map of how the pfas concentrations in um, madison's area waters sort of break down for our listeners, we'll post that up alongside our story when it goes up on the web. Uh, unfortunately, maps don't translate super well to radio. Uh, so can you just give me a, a brief, broad strokes illustration of the, the more precise PFAS breakdown in Madison's waterways? I know we've touched on it here over the past couple of minutes, but if you could just dive a little bit deeper into that for me.
2: Sure. Uh, so what we did is we were aware that there is uh, potential historical contamination issues Within, um, from airports, uh, from various other sectors, places where, uh, PFAS firefighting foam has been used extensively. Um, this is pretty common across the nation. Uh, these are compounds that were developed, uh, that had really good efficacy for fighting fires. They've been used extensively, um, particularly at airports, um, and in other situations as well. So, you know, we, we focused, we, we knew there was, um, uh, PFAS that was coming from areas like airports. So we tested Starkweather Creek, found it there. Starkweather Creek drains into Lake Monona. So it's sort of probably about the northern kind of third of, of Lake Monona. After finding those results, um, we expanded that sampling in 2019 to the rest of Lake Monona to better understand uh, you know, how, how widespread it was within the lake. Um, after that, then we had moved, we wanted to expand some of that sampling to include the other lakes. So if you were to go upstream of of Lake, Lake Monona, the Ahara River feeds into Lake Mendota, goes down through Lake Monona, and then, um, you know, carries on down through Upper Mud Lake, down through Lake Wabisa, and then down to Lake Caganza. So that's all sort of the, the chain of lakes that you see there. Lake Wingra, um, is also contributes, but that's, um, that's not impacted necessarily by, by Lake Monona. So when we were doing the sampling this year, um, we primarily wanted to sample all those lakes. If, you, if we looked upstream, uh, Lake Mendota, and, and then also on the side, Lake Wingra, those, um, those particular sites had very low concentrations. Um, Lake Mendota was less than one part per trillion for PFOS. Um, but if you carry downstream from Lake Monona and uh, concentrations in Lake Monona were somewhere, um, you know, they, they ranged in, um anywhere from 10 to six parts per trillion uh, within the water column there. We went downstream through there to uh, to the, the subsequent downstream lakes, including Upper Mud Lake, Lake Wabisa, and then Lake Caganza. And that's sort of how it, uh, how the, the river flows through. So, basically from Mendota through Monona, down through Wabisa, and then down to Lake Caganza. So that's really how we, how we focused that effort. What we ended up finding on that, Jonah, was that the areas unimpacted by uh, Lake Monona and Starkweather Creek discharges, the ones that were upstream, didn't tend to show values as high as the lakes downstream of Lake Monona. So that sort of leads us to the conclusion that there's clearly a source Uh, likely from Starkweather Creek, for those downstream lakes.
1: So what does this mean for residents? Is there anything they should be aware (laughs) of now after you you all publish this report? Uh, Are there any safety precautions they need to take?
2: So, Jonah, uh, from the department's perspective, last year after the 2019 data was released, we did update fish consumption advice for Starkweather Creek and Lake Monona. And that's available at the DNR's website for those fish consumption advisories. However, we don't yet have data back yet on fish tissue from those downstream lakes. At this point, our main concern and the route of exposure more generally for the public uh, is going to be fish consumption. Those particular lakes, all the lakes in the Madison chain, are not drinking water sources. That would be another concern if they were drinking water sources. Uh, DHS has um, recommendations for um, for groundwater standards for for, DA, for uh, PFAS compounds. However, uh, since the Madison chain of lakes is not a drinking water source, the main concern for us would be those, um, those that are taking and consuming fish from the, the lakes that have potential PFAS concentrations in them. What we would recommend then is people would, would want to follow the current fish consumption advice that is available for Lake Monona. If they have concerns um, they could certainly follow that same advice for the the other lakes. But as of yet, we don't have data to either change or develop new fish consumption advice for those other lakes.
1: I've been joined on the other line by Adrian Stocks. He's the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources Water Quality Program Director. Adrian, thank you so much for, for taking time out of your schedule to speak with me today.
2: My pleasure, John.
0: Later in June of this year, the DNR placed a fish consumption advisory on all waterways within the city of Madison, except Lake Mindora and Wingra, warning that eating high numbers of fish from the lakes could lead to an increased consumption of PFAS chemicals. Less than one week after the DNR report, Governor Tony Evers announced that his administration was preparing to take legal action against corporations allegedly responsible for PFAS pollution. Jonah Chester also had that story.
1: Wisconsin's Department of Justice, alongside the Department of Administration, is taking the first steps towards legal action against PFAS polluters. In a statement, Governor Tony Evers announced that he and Attorney General Josh Call have directed the Department of Administration to identify outside law firms to represent the state. The final decision on who will represent Wisconsin in future litigation is up to the governor. In an email to WORT, a Department of Justice spokesperson wrote that the state is seeking outside legal counsel, especially attorneys with a history of litigating environmental cases, because the workload associated with PFAS lawsuits is too much for the Department of Justice to handle by itself. The announcement comes after state lawmakers significantly weakened an emergency rule in December that allowed the DNR to regulate PFAS-based firefighting foams. It also comes a month after the state's PFAS Action Council, that's a coalition of state agencies and University of Wisconsin researchers, issued its PFAS Action Plan, which recommends pursuing legal actions against corporations that discharge PFAS into the state's waters, although it's light on exact details. Carly Michaels, who handles government relations for environmental advocacy group Clean Wisconsin, says Evers' plans will help counterbalance attempts to undercut PFAS enforcement and regulation.
3: And all these actions in the legislature have been done at the behest of industry and PFAS users. Um, So this action, finally providing accountability and prioritizing public health, is necessary and needed.
1: Many details of the future lawsuits have yet to be established. The governor's administration has not yet named which corporations it will be pursuing or a timeline for the legal action. At least five other states have pursued litigation against PFAS polluters. In those cases, monetary gain from settlements or damages have gone towards funding cleanup and removal of PFAS in affected communities and waterways. A spokesperson for the Department of Justice told WORT that the DOJ will work with the legal counsel to determine what financial damages claims to pursue, but did not speak to what those financial damages would be used for. Firefighting foam producers may be on the list, as PFAS is often found in firefighting foams. The Northwood towns of Peshtigo is the base of Tyco Fire Products, a subsidiary of Johnson Controls, which produces firefighting faux. This month, the company settled a $17.5 million class-action lawsuit with over 270 households over PFAS contamination found in private drinking wells. In Madison, PFAS contamination remains at the Dane County Airport and Truax Airfield, the byproduct of chemicals used in firefighter training from the 1950s to the 1980s. Last week, the state DNR reported that it had found elevated PFAS levels in all of Madison's lakes and throughout the Yahara River watershed. Madison, Dane County, the Wisconsin National Guard, which operates out of Truax, and the DNR are currently debating whose authority it is to administer and foot the bill for cleanup efforts. Maria Powell is the executive director of the Madison-based Midwest Environmental Justice Organization, which has spent years advocating for more robust PFAS testing in area waterways. Powell says that finger-pointing has severely bogged down the testing and cleanup efforts.
3: The problem is with the base, you have numerous responsible parties. Everybody has part of the responsibility. And so what I see happening is (laughs) everyone's to blame, so no one's to blame. There's a lot of finger-pointing. There's a lot of resistance. Um, You know, there was a lot of resistance right from the beginning about Um, who would test a lot of resistance to testing at all.
1: Even with a potential infusion of funding, cleaning up PFAS contamination is a notably difficult process. According to a 2019 report from the city of Madison, the chemical is so ubiquitous in modern life that trace amounts of it can be found in the bloodstreams of most residents. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester.
0: In August, Wisconsin State Journal reported that the Department of Justice had hired California law firm Share Endling LLP to assist the state to get accountability for PFAS polluters. In May, the city of Madison released a plan to mitigate PFAS contamination at Well 15, which sits about a mile from Truax Airfield and the Dane County Airport, after being closed for two years. Jonah Chester has more.
1: Well 15 has been shut down since March 2019, after community members raised concerns over PFAS contamination at the site. The well, located in northeast Madison, is about a mile away from the Truax Airfield, the site of the Wisconsin Air National Guard, current home to F-16 fighter jets, and future home to the contested F-35 jets. Mitigating PFAS contamination in the well could be a costly proposition. That's according to a new report analyzing possible solutions to fix the pollution. The report recommends using a filtering system that uses activated carbon, but just installing the system comes with an $825,000 price tag and each year the materials for the system could cost the city between fifty dollars to $300,000 to operate. Those estimates don't take into account the cost of additional construction at the well needed to install the filtering system. PFAS have a number of adverse health effects which are still being studied, and they're notoriously difficult to remove from an environment once released. The filtration system at Well 15 won't address the groundwater contamination in the water table. Instead, it would filter the water as it's extracted from the ground. Joe Grandy, Madison's water quality manager, says that to receive approval from the state, the filtering system will need to be able to filter down about 90% of PFAS from the well's water.
4: We we established our treatment objective
5: to be 90% uh, because that 90% would typically get Um, the results below detection for these PFAS compounds.
1: He says that the new filter is still just a recommendation. A final decision on how to address PFAS at Well 15 is likely still a ways off.
2: This is the initial step
5: um, in terms of identifying a process that can remove PFAS. So we have not made any decisions about whether we'll move forward with that. Later this year, we'll be looking at a um, process to determine if this is the most cost-effective way for making up this lost supply of water uh, on the east side when we had to shut down Well-15.
1: Well-15 has been out of operation since 2019, when the water utility shut it down amidst public pressure to address the PFAS contamination. In 2018, an analysis commissioned by the city linked the contamination to nearby Truax Airfield, where the Air National Guard had for years used flame-retardant, PFAS-laden firefighting foam. Alder Syed Abbas represents the area on the Madison Common Council. Although WELL-15 itself falls just outside his district's lines, it does serve a number of his constituents. He says the cost of installing and running the proposed filter should be split between the Air National Guard and local government.
5: One-time cost can be go in our capital budget or however we can adjust. The issue is the operational cost, so I, I'm really curious to see who's going to pay for that cost. And if city is going to pay, I strongly believe Air National Guard and Dane County should be involved in this.
4: And, and they should have to take the responsibility of
5: this contamination and should clean the rest of the contamination as well.
1: According to the water utility, the PFAS contamination at well 15 doesn't exceed state or federal drinking water standards. Despite that, the city opted to keep the well closed while the state's Department of Health Services drafts new groundwater standards for one member of the family of Forever Chemicals found in the well. And it isn't just Well 15 that's facing this issue. All of the city's municipal wells have at least trace amounts of the chemicals, and elevated levels of PFAS have been detected in all of Madison's lakes. According to a 2019 study conducted by the city, PFAS is so ubiquitous in modern life that trace amounts of it can be found in the bloodstreams of most residents. The Water Utilities Report and proposals now go to both the city's Water Utility Board and Water Quality Technical Advisory Committee for deliberation later this month. Meanwhile, the Air National Guard, Dane County, and the City of Madison are poised to submit an interim plan to the state's Department of Natural Resources on how to stop the spread of PFAS contamination from Truax and Well 15 into nearby Starkweather Creek. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester.
0: Well, 15 continues to sit closed to this day, in part because the city of Madison wanted to wait until the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, the DNR, had official standards in place. That began earlier this month, when the DNR had finally announced their proposed limits to be voted on in early 2022. WORT producer Nate Weggiehout had the story. As awareness of PFAS chemicals spreads across the country, eight states, such as Ohio and Michigan, have enacted regulations to limit the amount of the chemicals that are allowed in the water. Wisconsin, however, has none, but that soon may change. On Monday, the State Department of Natural Resources finalized thresholds for acceptable amounts of PFAS and PFOA in Wisconsin's surface and drinking water. The DNR has set a cap of 20 parts per trillion for the chemicals, a limit that came by the recommendation of the Department of Health Services. That would be a stricter limit than what is currently recommended by the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, which set a recommendation limit at 70 parts per trillion in 2016. Adam DeWeese, Chief of Public Water Supply with the DNR, says that all municipal water supplies will have to be tested for the chemical.
2: Essentially what would happen is if they exceeded that standard, they would be required in a certain amount of time to come back into compliance, either through some sort of sampling program or some kind of treatment or in some instances abandoning that Well, that is poisoned, essentially, and either relying on other wells that they already have that are that are safe or, you know, drilling new wells in areas that they think would be safe.
0: But regulation is not finalized quite yet. The regulation still needs to be formally approved by the DNR and state lawmakers. Today, the DNR held a public hearing to listen to both water activists and members of the community give their opinions on the regulation. Ed Cohen of Oconomowoc gave his support to the decision.
4: Obviously, our health, recreational opportunities, property value, and overall quality and necessities of life depend on clean water. All of our lives depend on clean water. I therefore support Permanent Rule DG 2419 and the implementation of Rule WY
3: 23-19.
0: Paul Matthewson is a staff scientist at Clean Wisconsin, a nonprofit environmental advocacy organization. He attended today's hearing and says he's glad the state is addressing the issue.
4: Yeah, so I think these we think these are a good starting point, especially when you combine them with the the next round of chemicals that they are that the DNR is currently working on the cycle eleven contaminants that include another fourteen PFAS compounds. You know, it makes sense to start with PFOA and PFOs since they're the best known, best studied ones, and so we have the most information on them. But it, they're not the only ones out there. They're only two of Thousands of chemicals, uh, PFAS chemicals out there, so it's going to be, you know, it's the start and hopefully it's just the start of the process of getting standards in place that protect Wisconsin residents from all sorts of PFAS contamination problems.
0: The limit put in place by the DNR would only affect community water supplies, a portion of the state's over 11,000 wells. Private wells would not be subject to the regulations. DeWeese estimates that around 2% of the state's 2,000 community wells would need to be serviced in some way. In Madison, one well on the city's east side has been shut down since 2019 due to concerns over PFAS contamination. City officials have been waiting on the DNR to issue specific limits on PFAS chemicals. Laura Ola, Executive Director for Citizens for Safe Water Across Badger, echoes Clean Wisconsin, applauding this as a first step, but says that more wells need to be tested in order to fully understand the scope of the problem.
3: It's exceedingly important because right now there's no requirements for public water supplies to be tested for any form of PFAS chemicals. And that means right now less than... 1% 1% of the state's 11,000 water systems, public water systems, have been tested for PFOA, PFOS, or any of the thousands of other PF, <laughs> PFAS chemicals. But this is such an important start so to get some information to people so they can make informed decisions about where they're getting their drinking water from.
0: The Madison Water Utilities did not respond to a request for comment by airtime. The regulation still needs to be officially signed by the Department of Natural Resources by the beginning of the year. After that, it will head for approval to the state legislature. If approved there, it's expected to go into effect next summer. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate wege you're listening to WORT Local News. Thank you for listening to our special Year in Review. I'm your host, Nate How. To celebrate the holidays, our volunteers are taking a week off to rest and spend time with their families while we look at some of the stories from this year that affected our city. We'll take a short break, and in the second half of the show, we'll take a look at some of the other issues that have affected our water this year.
6: Was your New Year's resolution for 2021 to just make it through? Why not try something new in 2022? Take all the experience you gained giving presentations to your pets in quarantine and bring it to the WORT airwaves. We're looking for a number of new hosts, engineers, and producers for a variety of shows.
1: Looking to improve your scientific chops? Her perpetual Notion Machine could use your inquiring
6: mind on Thursday evenings. Want to get more involved in Madison's LGBTQIA2 community? Query would love to have you on Wednesday evenings. Interested in women's issues? Our By Women For Women news show, Her Turn, needs your voice on Sunday mornings.
1: Do you think international issues need more coverage? Worldview needs interviewers and engineers for Sunday evenings.
6: Applicants must be fully vaccinated with a one year commitment. We provide all the free training you need.
1: Engineers should have some familiarity with computers and a willingness to work as part of a team.
6: To get started, call Adrian Ramney at 608 321 9583 or email adrian at wardfm.org. Or head online to wardfm.org and look under the How to Help tab. Here's to 2022.
0: Melt into a dream.
2: Hello again, friends. Stu Levitan here to let you know about a special edition of Madison in the 60s this Wednesday night from 6 to 7. We'll learn about race and classrooms and the black study strike. I'll announce the female newsmaker of the decade and profile some of the other women-making history. And we'll get close and personal with two lords of the ring, Muhammad Ali and Charlie Moore. That's the Madison in the 60s special edition this Wednesday night from 6 to 7 on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Listener supported community radio.
6: WORT thanks its listener sponsors and Five Nines. A locally owned cloud service provider of enterprise level IT infrastructure consulting, hosting and management services on the web at 59s.com phone number 5121000
0: You're listening to WORT Local News, our special year-in-review edition. I'm your host, Nate Wegeho. We've looked at how PFAS has affected Madison's water this year, but those chemicals are not the only issues we've faced. Over recent years, Madison's once-popular beaches have sat largely untouched due to a poisonous slime caused by blue-green algae. In November, Morning Buzz producer Brian Standing spoke with a member of the Clean Lakes Alliance to discuss how the lakes can be saved from this turquoise slime. Madison's trademark lakes have suffered in
5: recent years. Swimmers have largely abandoned once popular beaches due to thick films of poisonous turquoise slime caused by blooms of blue-green algae. The main culprit is phosphorus, a nutrient that runs into the lakes and promotes algae growth. Back in 2012, a public-private partnership called the Clean Lakes Alliance set out an ambitious goal to fix this problem. Reduce the amount of phosphorus to lakes Mendota and Monona by 50%. Here we are almost 10 years into the program and we thought we'd check in and see how things are going. Paul Deerlove, Clean Lakes Alliance Deputy Director, joins us now by phone. Welcome to the 8 O'Clock Buzz.
4: Good morning, Brian. Thank you for having me on your show. So tell us a
5: little bit about the Clean Lakes Alliance. How did it come about, and how is the project funded?
4: Well, Clean Lakes Alliance isn't uh, a very old organization. We were founded in 2010, and it was uh, put together as an organization with the recognition that we have these beautiful resources, these, these gems, um, watery gems throughout Mad- the greater Madison area that needed protecting. And uh, despite years and years of effort and cleaning those, uh, those lakes up, um, they still continue to have problems. So, Clean Lakes Alliance is a nonprofit organization that felt the lake should be the, the center of the community and should be treated as the center of the community.
5: And how are you funded?
4: Uh, we, we're, we're, we're a non-profit, so we receive uh, donations, um, so we have individual, we call them Friends of, of Clean Lakes, our, our individual supporters that uh, contribute dollars to the organization. Um, we do get some, some grants and we have uh, different uh, events and programs that, that uh, generate some revenue and we also have a, a a very supportive business community in Greater Madison that that uh, provides dollars to our programs and services.
5: And are you primarily an advocacy group, or are you providing direct technical services?
4: You know, it's a great question. We 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 oftentimes uh, uh, try to do a lot at, at Clean Lakes Alliance because you know, with trying to improve water quality, usually involves so many different aspects um so we've been involved in advocacy we've been involved um and in are continuing to continue to be involved in education uh we give out grants to partners that are doing good work in in the watershed um you know we were really involved in the science so uh, we, we fund and participate in projects that uh, that try to understand uh, the dynamics of water quality in the lake. So it's, it's pretty far-ranging. We've been involved in some policy matters. Um, but uh, I would say probably the, the, the main focus of, of our organization is, is just to build a community of advocates around the lakes, people that are interested in, in doing something, they care about the lakes, and they want to just take action, and we try to direct them. Uh, and, and how they c- they can take action to protect water quality.
5: So let's turn to the sort of state of the Yoharo chain of lakes. Um, about 70 to 80% of the land area of the Lake Mendota watershed is agricultural cropland. 10 or 15 years ago, uh, researchers were estimating that the amount of phosphorus coming into Lake Mendota from both agricultural and urban sources was about equal. Is that still the case?
4: Yeah, you know, we do have, it's it's a very good point. We do have um, uh, an interesting watershed. It's it's uh, predominantly agricultural. A lot of us city dwellers we would imagine that the watershed or the, the land area that drains surface water to the lakes is mostly urban, you know, because that's, that's where most of our focus is. We're in neighborhoods, we're, you know, around the downtown area. Um. So we see the watershed as this sort of built-up environment, but it's actually mostly agriculture, and especially north of uh, Lake Mendota, which is considered our headwaters. That's where uh, most of the land area that's drained to the lakes is, is north of, of Lake Mendota, and that's pr- primarily rural and agricultural.
5: But in terms of the amount of phosphorus that's actually coming off of that land, have we seen changes in that? I mean, we've been working... Uh, is there a difference between the amount of phosphorus coming off the agricultural part of the, the watershed versus the urban part of the watershed that has changed in recent years?
4: yeah there, there, there has been actually um, and it, it's a good point and I'm, I'm glad you're you're bringing up the topic of phosphorus um, so some have already heard this already but it only takes about one pound of phosphorus to generate, 500-plus pounds of wet algae growth, so it's it's got a huge multiplier effect. You just have a little bit of phosphorus, which is contained in soil, leaves, um, fertilizer, organic matter. Manoir. You get a little bit of phosphorus in the water, and it causes an explosion of green <laughs> in terms of, of algae blooms. But, yes, we have been seeing um, – actually, we've uh, modeled – a a very positive impact in terms of agricultural practices that are being put on the landscape. So when I talk about agricultural practices, those would be things like uh, changing tillage practices so the soil isn't as disturbed as it would be if you turn up the soil before before planting, and it's putting in uh, vegetated buffers along stream corridors or ditches uh, that would sort of infiltrate water and capture sediment and phosphorus before it enters the stream corridor or it's cover crops. So when the crop comes off the field, the the, the field can be planted to a, a temporary uh, cover of vegetation that acts like a protective blanket on that, that soil um, uh, and prevents soil from getting in, into the, into the water. Um, but these practices, they're, they have been, um, uh, they're becoming more popular and more widely adopted. And we've modeled, um, a very positive impact. So if, if climate change wasn't happening and we weren't seeing all these sort of really heavy rainfall events, uh, we would have actually seen an improvement in the amount of phosphorus or a reduction in the amount of phosphorus coming in from those agricultural areas as a result of those practices.
5: Well, that brings and up,
4: unfortunately it's just the runoff is that there's we've getting too much rain so it's overwhelming those impacts.
5: Well, that brings up a really good point. I mean, we're we're we've been investing lots in both the agricultural and the urban sectors and trying to reduce uh, runoff, but all of that has been washed out because of these huge rainfall events. I mean, the, the prime example is the rainfall we had back in 2018. But even the smaller storms have gotten larger, more intense, and more runoff. Are we just spinning our wheels here?
4: You know, it, it's, it's easy to lose hope, right? You know, you, you think, well, geez, what, we're, we're investing all these dollars. We're, we're um, you know, putting in all these practices, and we're not seeing a change, change in water quality. So now I just challenge you to think about what, what would happen if we weren't put, putting in those practices and we weren't taking those actions. These lakes would be probably cesspools. You know, they would be probably unusable. Uh, but algae blooms probably every day in, in the summer. But these these actions are making a difference. And I think the lesson here is we just need to double down on what's working. And we need to do more of, of these actions to account for the, the wetter environment and these sort of gully washer uh, rainstorms that we're seeing. And, and even warmer winters where we're having rainfall in February, that's, that's uh um, delivering a lot of uh, contamination and pollution to the lakes during that, a time period when it usually didn't happen because it was snow-covered and you didn't get rainfall in February. Now, you mentioned
5: uh, soil erosion in rural areas as a, as a prime source of phosphorus uh, into the lakes, but a very large percentage of farmland in Dane County is used just to manage manure. What improvements are we making in handling cow poop?
4: Yeah, well, um, manure is, is you know when used properly, it's a it's a great resource, right? Um, unfortunately, when too much is generated and you, and you don't have a place to put it or or a place to treat it, uh, then it becomes a pollutant. So we're, what we're trying to do through this compact effort um, is is we're trying to, in this new planning effort is we're trying to. Uh, trying to find ways where we can really utilize that manure as a resource. Um, it, w- one way that's been done in the past, and we'd like to see this continue, is we have two anaerobic manure digesters in our watershed where uh, farmers that have um, livestock operations in the vicinity of those, those digesters send their manure to, to, to that facility and it gets processed and treated in a way where the manure is easier to handle. You can bring it to fields that are more phosphorus deficient, um, and it's just a a better way of of timing the, the application of manure so it doesn't become a water quality problem. So we'd like to actually see more of those digesters uh, in the watershed, whether they're a regional type of facility or on-site farm digesters for, uh, for farms that have livestock operations.
5: Now, anaerobic manure digesters sound like a fairly expensive, infrastructure-heavy solution, and we've seen in some cases that they can be subject to failure somewhat catastrophically uh, in in recent years. Um, in some recent history, where we had one that actually uh, uh, collapsed or exploded, I believe, and sent uh, huge amounts of manure um, untreated out. Um, are the, there been much talk about something uh, simpler, perhaps like reducing the number of dairy cows on the landscape?
4: Yeah, you know, w- one thing that we, we've been doing as an organization and what would be recommended in the, in the, this uh, updated plan is just more composting of manure. You know, like in, in our urban areas, uh, you know, those who um, are concerned about leaves in the street, for instance, which is a, a large source of urban phosphorus pollution to the lakes, uh, those people who want to get those leaves out of the street gutter, they compost uh, the leaves, you know, they, 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 you need a place to put them, so either those city crews are going to come by and pick them up or you got to drop them off at a composting facility or you got to compost them on your own property. So we encourage composting of leaves in urban areas, and we encourage composting of manure in our rural areas. So if, if, if manure can be composted on the farm, uh, again, it then becomes lighter, easier to to move around, um, and and then you can apply it to the to the fields and places where it's most needed, and you can avoid the high risk areas like locations that drain directly to surface waters.
5: And is composting different than land spreading, which is the common way of disposing of manure now?
4: Yeah, land, land spreading is is uh, usually it's the raw manure, so it's it's a lot of liquid. Um, it saturates the soil um, it, it's it's uh, very high high in phosphorus it's uh, you know it's, it's in its raw form um, composting really gets out the, the the liquid component of of the material um, it it uh, heat the piles heat up um, and, and when composting happens it heats up and it kills off pathogens and reduces smells and, and so forth so kind of it just makes it an easier uh, uh resource to handle.
5: All right, we've been speaking with Paul Dearlove of the Cleaning Lake Alliance. Thank you so much for joining us on the quick Clockboat.
4: Thank you. Appreciate being here.
3: they say don't drink the water. We need it for the fire. New York is drinking that. All of California is drinking
2: that. No, are down south is drinking that. It's minerals is drinking it. Now they Staying
0: on the topic of lakes, with last night's snowfall, saw road crews out throwing salt on our roads, which keeps our roads safe and free from ice. But that salt has to go somewhere, and that somewhere happens to be in our lakes. After a report last week that Lake Michigan was becoming more and more solidic, WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with Hilary Dugan about how road salt affects Madison's lakes. Dugan is an assistant professor of limnology at UW-Madison and has studied salt's effect on our lakes. As winter slowly approaches, the city will begin to use more and more salt on Madison's roads to keep them from getting too slick. With me today is Hilary Dugan, Assistant Professor at the Center of Limnology at UW-Madison to talk about how that salt ends up in our lakes. Hillary, thank you for talking with me today.
3: Yeah, happy to be here.
0: So starting things off, I know we haven't used too much of it yet, but how does the salt end up in our lakes?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. And you're right, it's been a really dry year. So the lakes are actually benefiting from that in a number of ways. But in terms of salt, um, we have to remember that all salt that we put down in the environment, and for the most part, we can think about that as road salt, is going to end up, you know, it stays in the environment, no one's going around picking up that road salt. So when it interacts with snow, uh, it dissolves, it ends up where the water ends up. So that's going to be either into our lakes, into our streams, or into our groundwater. Um, so it's you know that salt's not being removed from the environment once we put it down.
0: What happens to the water in these lakes as more and more salt is put into them?
3: Yeah. So usually we talk about sort of lake water quality having some kind of mass balance. You know, there's some mass of a pollutant going in, and there's a mass of pollutant going out. Um, and so what we're seeing in Madison and in a lot of urban Wisconsin lakes and lakes in the Midwest is that there's more salt going in than can be flushed downstream. So over time, that salinity increases. Um, and so the to make the problem better, we need to put less salt in so that it can flush downstream and sort of flush out. Um, and so what we're seeing is that you know every winter we start salting roads. We're just putting such a large quantity of salt on our roadways that it's sort of overwhelming the natural capacity for lakes and rivers to kind of flush themselves out.
0: And for the things that live in those lakes, the fish and the small plants, how does it affect them?
3: Yeah, it affects them differently. Um, You know, we can think of it kind of like humans, you know, there's some humans that seemingly can eat a lot of salt. There's others that, you know, have salt-restricted diets because of certain health conditions and when we think about aquatic ecology and just a range of organisms that live in lakes and streams, some have a lot higher tolerance than others. Um, you know, so things like freshwater mussels, we know are really intolerant. Um, there's been a lot of interesting work done on things like zooplankton, looking at how their community dynamics change as we put salt in. Fishes tend to have a slightly higher tolerance. They have more sort of sophisticated, um, ways to regulate their internal ion balance. Uh, and so this sort of, a, it's a, each species is going to react differently. Um, there might also be some evolution at play where, you know, we've been salting lakes for a long time. Some of the quicker lived species might actually be evolving higher salt tolerances. So it's kind of run the gamut. Um, what I will say is that invasive species, so like the non-native Wisconsin species tend to be more generalist. They tend to be better adapted to living in a broad range of environments. And so, if anything, as we start increasing salinity in uh, Wisconsin freshwater environments, we're just going to be doing a disservice to any native species that are really adapted to really low salinities.
0: So, we've been salting our roads for quite some time now here in the upper Midwest in general. When did we first start to notice the negative effects that that salt had on our lakes?
3: Yeah, we've been salting roads since, you know, World War II, uh, for a while, the state of Wisconsin had a, you know, a clear roads policy, making sure that, you know, every, cl- uh, every road was clear of snow and ice. Um, and people started sounding sound the alarm pretty early on. You know, there was a big environmental movement, um, you know, through the 70s, and people were talking about it then. You know, it's, it's obvious when you watch it happening that we're just dumping, you know, millions of tons of salt into environments that historically had no salt. So this goes way back. Um, I think there's been a resurgence, late, resurgence lately thinking about, um, you know, better ways of dealing with this. I mean, we, even though the alarm was sounded decades ago, there, there really wasn't any change in practices. And in fact, just with bigger populations, more roads, there's only been more salt use. Um, and I don't think it's been until recently that um, sort of at a, at a higher level, so thinking about, you know, the state of Wisconsin, um, you know. Thinking about ways of salting roads that uses a lot less salt while maintaining public safety. And so I think that's both an environmental push, but also an economic push. Salt is getting expensive. We spend a lot of money de-icing roads every winter. And so there's definitely sort of a happy medium where we can save money, help the environment, and still maintain safety.
0: I wanted to ask, is there another solution to both keeping our lakes free from salt as well as keeping our roads from getting too slick? Are there other communities that you know of that are looking for solutions to this problem?
3: Yeah, so that's kind of a, you know, two, I think there's, there's two ways to answer that question. The first is just in terms of our approach to winter and to snow and ice. And so there are many countries in the world that have climates similar to ours that don't use road salt um but they sort of have an approach that you know in winter roads are going to be icy and snowy and um but, you know there's a lot more use of you know snow tires and just sand for traction and um different ways of providing traction without sort of clearing that ice um, so that's you know one approach is just shifting how we view winter and driving um, the other approach is looking for engineering solutions like can we clear roads more effectively um, without using so much salt? There's no you know, panacea to that question. There's um, the shift we're seeing right now is the shift from rock salt to liquid brine application. And so that switch is still using salt. It's the exact same salt it's just being applied as a liquid instead of a solid. And in doing that, you save a lot of salt. So you just it's more effective. It's a more effective means of deicing, icing And so you're uh, you just end up using a lot less salt. There's also further down the road, potentially some engineering um, uh, innovations, things like solar heated roads, perhaps permeable pavement, where if you get water, water can drain through the asphalt, it's not going to pond and ice. Um, and so, you know, I think looking to the future, we have to think both of the engineering approaches and also thinking about, you know, the question of do we need to remove salt or do we re- need to remove snow, you know, from all page surfaces.
0: Earlier this week, it was reported that even the Great Lakes have been experiencing this issue. What does the future of Wisconsin's lakes look like if we continue going at this pace?
3: So, so far, most urban lakes, we see an increase in salinity. Um, And as I said, that's a balance between how much salt is coming in and how quickly those lakes can flush that downstream. You know, what that's going to take to change that is to lessen our inputs. Um, As you said, the Great Lakes, you know, we did a research study where we, uh, one of my colleagues drove around Lake Michigan and sampled every river going into the lake and saw that, you know, on an annual basis, there's a million metric tons of salt that are going into Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan is so big that it can kind of buffer that, um, and so the concentrations are still pretty low. Uh, but it's still worrisome I and mean, we use a lot of these uh, freshwater supplies as drinking for drinking water um, and just like freshwater organisms don't want to be living in a saline environment we as humans don't want to be drinking water that tastes salty. Um, and so I think you know now is the time to really focus on changing some of our um, you know the ways the way we let salt enter the environment Um to really protect those water supplies, because it's a lot more cost effective now to uh, prevent salt being put into lakes and rivers than it is to remove it, um, you know, once we, once we have to do that.
0: I wanted to ask you on that point, is there a, once the lakes get salt in them, is there a solution to getting the salt out of the lakes? <laughs>
3: In all practicality, no, um, but it will, it stays dissolved. So it will flush downstream. It's not like other contaminants that might stay, um, you know, locked up in the food chain or locked up in sediments. It will just stay dissolved in the water. So it can be flushed out. So it's a really good thing. Um, that just takes time, um, the, you know, the one end of the spectrum is something like desalinization where you can remove salt from water. Um, it just takes a lot of energy and that is very cost-prohibitive. So, um, you know, we've always sort of taken our freshwater resources for granted here, Um, and it's, you know, they're relatively cheap to use, and there's lots of them, uh, but we really want to make sure they stay fresh so we don't have to, you know, have this extra burden of uh, trying to remove soil from water.
0: Well, Hillary, that's all the questions that I have for you. Do you have any final thoughts on the matter that you'd like
3: to share? No, I mean, it's I'm sure uh, people in southern Wisconsin Uh, Some people are dying for snow, but I think uh, the roads department is pretty happy. They haven't had to be been out (laughs) salting yet.
0: I'm sure they have been happy with that. (laughs) I've been speaking with Hillary Dugan, assistant professor at the Center of Limnology at UW-Madison. Hillary, thank you once again for speaking with me today.
3: Anytime, and uh, have a happy holiday, Nate.
0: And that does it for tonight's show. Our volunteers are taking a break this week, but we will have special shows every day, highlighting specific issues that have affected Madison this year. Stay tuned for tomorrow, where we will look at Rheindahl Park and the issues unhoused people have encountered over the last year. Thank you to Victor Calzoni for engineering tonight's show. Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT, and I'm your host, Nate Wuggiehow. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast, subscribe on iTunes Podcast, Spotify, or or wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.